So Jeff, tell us about your history because a lot of people think of you as a freak or an outlier and think your genes are something special, but you come from a Midwestern farming family and you can tell us more about your history and, and how you've made your genes work for you rather than work against you. Because I think a lot of people pull that gene genetics card up as their fate accompli and think that they really can't do anything about it. So share with us your journey so that people recognize that you're actually very close to the norm. I, I mean, if you look at my background or my family history, um, I have, you know, I have two younger siblings, both more recently have like lost quite a bit of weight, but, um, we're both very heavy. You know, I, my brother, my younger brother, um, who's the same height as I am outweighed me by about 140 pounds. So he was double my size um, at his high, at, at his height it, it is his, his highest weight. Um, he's now lost a bunch of weight. He's had, uh, um, which has helped his health issues. Um, he's in his thirties, late thirties. Um, and my father was type two diabetic and uh, was diagnosed in his fifties. Um, he's probably dealing with it quite a long time before that, but he was active on a farm as a farmer, but he got out of farming uh, when he was in his fifties and uh, started kind of sitting more and was more sedentary because he, he did a sales job, you know, driving a car around. And so he did a lot of staying at hotels, eating out, you know, and, and that kind of thing. And he's been overweight. My, he was overweight. He's now passed away, but he, he was overweight my whole life. My mom's been diagnosed with dementia. Um, so she's, you know, a, a long-term care facility uh, in her seventies. So, and, and I have two uncles that died or, or one died early. My grandfather died in his sixties of a heart attack. My, my uncle died at 42 or 42 or 43. It's been 25 year anniversary this month. And one of my, my mom's sisters. So both sides of my family have metabolic issues and, and most of it, they're all due to, in my opinion, due to diet uh, and lifestyle choices. And, uh, you know, my, I, grew, I grew up with a father who, you know, basically said, Hey, part of getting older is getting fat. And I, you know, I definitely rebelled against that a little bit, um, and educated myself, you know, on nutrition, um, strength training, weight room. You know, I always have been a runner, you know, even a casual runner, even when I was a mountain biker, I was still casually running three or four days a week, you know, 20 to 40 minutes. Um, so I've always exercised. Uh, I've always at and, and I always had an uncle, my mom's youngest sister, who's the only one in the family who's never had any issues. He's never had any heart issues or high blood pressure or anything like that. But he's always been thin. He's always worked out. He skis hard. He runs. Um, and always, uh, I, I kind of witnessed him kind of exercising regularly. And he was never overweight like my other uncles who had heart issues. So he, that was to me a signal too, just as a, you know, growing up as a teenager and, and young adult, watching that kind of difference in like lifestyle choices and what they look like and how and what kind of health issues they were dealing with. So that's kind of my background. And that, you know, and I've always been, I've always exercised, I've always lifted weights. 
I've always run or mountain biked or skied or, you know, mixed it up. So um, obviously more running in the last 20 years, but before that is what I'm talking about. So let's, let's kind of frame it and, and, and even take it down a little bit further down this road. So your, your family, other than that uncle, we're basically doing the standard American diet, right? Doing what, what people are sort of advised to do, right? Well, um, not even advised. I would say that like, you know, life revolved around food and there's a lot of, you know, if I look back at all my aunts and uncles, like there's a, there were, there were, there were dessert and there was snacking and there's chips and soda and like all that kind of typical Midwest uh, standard American diet. So not, not, you know, a lot of them grew up on a farm. So there was like livestock and there was good, you know, meat in the fr freezer and that kind of stuff. But we we're also eating junk food too sometimes. So, you know, candy. Well, well let's, let's just yeah. say it's a standard American diet because remember when the, in 82, when the food pyramid came in, you know, all of a sudden they recommended you eat a lot of carbs and cut back on the fat. Maybe your family didn't cut back on the fat and the red meat as much, but it was, they were doing essentially what the yeah. government advised. They were just doing it on steroids because I mean, we'll put our, let's, let's put our tinfoil hats on and ride here a little Jeff. Um, basically what was behind that was the food companies knew that this would make people hungrier. Right. Yeah. And they would, they would overeat by default without knowing it. So, you know, like you said, that's, that's what happened. Then you had this uncle who made an impression upon you. And you kind of followed in his footsteps, and and let's let's kind of unpack a little bit about your dietary journey because you went through a whole bunch of iterations, including vegetarianism. I don't know if you went full vegan, but I didn't you know, go full vegan, but I went vegetarian for about seven years. My wife and I in our twenties, um, mm -hmm. and I, and I still snuck some meat from time to time because I I just never I never I never felt like I was thriving on that diet. And I was always hungry. I was never satisfied. Uh, I had the worst body composition during that window as well. Like I lost a lot of muscle. You know, I had a lot of muscle mass. I lifted a lot in college, high school and college, because I played, you know, four sports a year and played football. And, um, and I continued to lift in college. And one of the things I, I think that once I went to a vegetarian diet, I really, really, my body um, composition really changed or not changed. It just deteriorated. Um, my wife deteriorated even more. You know, our first kid was born under a vegetarian diet. Um, he was, he was pretty small. He was, uh, he had some rampant tooth decay in his first like two years of his baby teeth. Um, and that's when we made a shift when he was about 18 months old um, or so. You, are, you went to Weston Price, didn't you? Yeah, we, we first went for about 12 or 13 years. We went to Weston A. Price, kind of Sally Fallon Nourishing Traditions book. And we kind of got rid of processed food and started eating kind of whole foods, organic, started eating meat again, clean meat, you know, grass fed, you know, free range, that kind of stuff, you know, wild caught. And um and then, but we were soaking our legumes and we were still eating grains and, and that kind of stuff. So, um, and that's kind of where we shifted. And then I did that into my forties, that diet. And I was not thriving by my mid forties and was still dealing with some stuff. And that's when I shifted to kind of more high fat, low carb, kind of more paleo, 
you know, got rid of grains, sugar and, and seed oils in my everyday diet, you know, 80, 90% of the time. No, that was, that was the end of 2015 when you were. Yeah. Yeah. When I shifted yeah, to kind of start work on this. Yeah. 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 So, um, and then you've been on sort of the OFM approach where you, you're, you're eating more protein, plenty of fat, not high fat. I mean, it's not ketogenic high fat, right? Yeah, I did. I've only done ketogenic kind of moderate protein, high fat, you know, maybe like right at the beginning to reset, yep. you know, yep. for a month or, or so. And then I've done it as a tool every once in a while here and there for like a week or something. But um, mostly I probably would consider my approach now more carnivore keto, which would be more animal based diet. So I, I use, you know, I use really, I eat pretty high protein, um, moderate fat, uh, and then use fruit and like potatoes and sweet potatoes strategically, kind of the OFM protocol of like bringing them in around effort and volume and, and training. Yeah, no, that, that, that's, that's really cool. And, and, and that's the important thing for people to understand is there's, as we discussed, there's way too much sugar in the diet of a, of an athlete, just because your body looks at all those carbs as sugar, yeah. right? And you managed to ditch a bunch of that sugar, but there's still plenty of sugar there to fuel your tra high level training, long training, and of course your competition. Yeah. And I would, I would clarify here that I do use, you know, simple carbohydrates on long runs and races, anything efforts over two hours. Uh, I'll use, you know, a product like Tailwind, for example, and keep an IV drip of, of simple carbs coming in um, and electrolytes, uh, you know, but, but other than that, I'm, I'm kind of sugar free as much as possible, maybe say 80, 90% of the time. I still have go out and have a drink every once in a while and, you know, and occasionally go out to eat and I don't stress about, you know, eating beans and rice at a Mexican restaurant, you know, every once in a while. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not like dogmatic about it, but I do, I do stick to it probably 80 to 90% of the time. Yeah. And that's what we teach with OFM, right? You teach the same thing. It's like, don't stress because stress will make you burn sugar. Yeah. Uh, and it's just like, once you build back that, re that resilience and get your stomach and gut back in shape, again, this is using the tools to get your, make your genes, including the genes of your bio and work for you. I mean, you basically got your candida pretty much in, in remission without any kind of pharmacological interventions. Yeah. It was all nutritional intervention. Yeah. Completely yeah. Put it in remission. Yeah. So that's a, that's a great thing. So you know, this, you know, what's your message to people about their, when they pull up the gene card? Because the, the fact is people pull, pull up that genetics card is like a fate, a complay that, you know, oh, this is my destiny because of my genes. But I mean, now that they've known your history of hardworking Midwestern background and pretty much everybody in your immediate family suffered the consequences that are considered normal in today's healthcare, right? Yeah, you're, 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 you're the, the, the default, like that once you get to a certain age, you're going to be dealing with these issues. And I, I, I would say that, um, and you know, I think we can over, I, I do truly believe that, you know, nutrition is the way to like avoid the farm pharmacy <laughs> and, 
and by just choosing well and we've been i i think we've been kind of led astray over the last 30 40 years with our kind of food pyramid and you know pushing grains and and sugar laden foods um and, then, and pills to fix the problems or the symptoms <laughs> yeah yeah to mask the problem more than anything and yeah. i think that this is one of those situations that you know animal products have been demonized and i would say that that is about as far as from the truth as can be possible if you can kind of be animal centered you're going to be in a lot better health outcomes long term as long as you're not eating a bunch of junk in tandem with those animal foods yeah and i think it's important for the audience to recognize that the way with ofm on animal foods is you eat the whole animal and when you do that you get that nutritional balance and when you get the nutritional balance what i found is if you're not really big on animal foods the amount you need to eat is so small it's scary and and i've got a bias i love i love a big steak if somebody puts a, a 16 18 20 24 ounce steak in front of me it's it's toast but even with that bias i have what i've seen consistently and you you and peter are included is when you get the nutritional balance just right whether you're supplementing with organ meat like liver capsules or gelatin uh, college gelatin or collagen or eating it actually real you really don't need to eat a whole lot of animal products and that and that makes it much more sustainable from a environmental social perspective i think that that's important that people know that because you know part of the demonizing of animal products has to do with people just eating tons of it and certainly a lot of the people in the carnivore movement to get attention online with social media are posting how much meat they eat daily and that's just not true i mean i think that you if you think about how much animal products you eat and the calories and nutrition they provide in relation to the amount of of physical output you're doing it's it's probably scarily small. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I do shoot for a very strategic amount of protein per day. That's the only like macro I kind of really keep track of. Uh, I do keep a running tab of carbs per day, but um, I really focus on a pretty high protein. I try to hit about 40 to 50, 40 to 60 grams of protein per serving. Um, so I eat a decent amount of protein. To repair but i also support local grass-fed sources of beef and ranches uh, yeah and but, but 40 to 60 grams 40 to 60 grams if you're taking 60 grams as your high point that's only a half a pound of animal product a day in terms of protein yeah i mean i'm probably eating more than that i mean right right you're eating more than that but, but I mean, serving you know like four or five eggs and of eggs or like uh you know half a pound of burger or yeah. something like that it's not it's not a ton but you, if you start doing the math you know and also i would say this is a whole nother rabbit rabbit hole we don't need to go down necessarily but but i mean when we start looking at ruminant herds and the natural system of the planet it's really grasslands and and um seasonal wetlands which would be seasonal grasslands when they're not a wetland yep. so all those natural wetland systems, we've lost over 70% of our natural grasslands in the, on the globe. And those were for ruminant herds. 
and gigantic herds, right? And not not grains, not corn, soybeans, and wheat. And um, and so when we start looking at monoculture, you know, one plant on millions of acres, corn, soybeans, and wheat, and all these commodity crops that I came from, that farming background, um, but I also came from a ranching background as well. We kind of balanced the two. So I'm familiar with both in, in, very intricately. If we look at like how, you know, one way we can vote with our dollars from a sustainable perspective is just to support grass-fed ranches because they're actually mirroring the natural global system and monoculture is not. So if you're buying grains, then you are supporting monoculture. So you're voting with your dollars to put mil one plant on millions of acres that kills a bunch of mammals, small mammals, because you till that ground at least twice a year and displace and kill a bunch of animals um, from their not, own. Not to mention that that the biome of the soil gets fundamentally altered. Yeah, and it's not supposed to be that way because a natural grassland is 10 times under the ground what it is above the ground, which means it's a giant carbon sink. It's a giant um, carbon, it, it sequesters carbon. Um, and when we get to the life, full life cycle of an herbivore, say like, a bison or an elk then or a grass-fed cow then it actually becomes carbon negative so it offsets its entire carbon cycle if you have it on grass if it's grass grass fed grass finished so i i would i would direct people to uh the book uh, and documentary sacred cow the i think alan really savory yeah. yeah and alan savory's work i would i'd say i think both of those works are you know rob wolf and Diana Rogers put out Sacred Cow and then also just talking about this system of what, you know, we just, we have, as a population of humans on this planet have really um, lost sight of the natural system and understanding the natural cycle of life and the natural system of like how they're supposed to be gigantic herds on, on millions and millions of acres. Instead, we've pushed them to cat feedlots and then put corn, soybeans, and wheat where their natural habitat is. So we, we've got to get that system like rebalance. And the more you can vote with your dollars, that would be my call to everyone listening right now is vote with your dollars, go to your local regional rancher within a five hour radius of your house and buy a half a beef, half a half a beef every year. Yeah, I think that that's a great thing. Is I've often talked about this is like, and I've actually, by explaining this, I've gotten some vegans back to the fore. It's like, what is the natural, you know, vegans tend to want to be into nature and natural systems and yeah. for the planet and climate change. So, you know, it's like, where do humans fit in that cycle of life? And it's like I say, we have our eyes in the front of our head. We have canine teeth and we only have one stomach. And our, our digestive tract is actually closer to a dog's than a pig's. So we're, we're, we're really omnivorous carnivores. Um, and that's where we fit. And like, like we're talking earlier, you know, when you eat the whole animal, which the anthropological record is clear that as hunter-gatherers, savannah hunter-gatherers, we ate the whole animal um, and we feasted and fasted. I don't think, I think for most of human history, um, feast and famine was an isolated rare thing that most humans actually thrived because we figured out that following these great ruminant herds, um, you know, conferred a, a stable food supply. Yes, it took huge amounts of physical effort to harvest that and some risk but there was always food 
365, right? And and following those rumen herds just, you know, dispersed us across the globe, right? Um, and we we did this, you know, with this whole idea that we had this stable food supply, that we found the fisheries, we found the ruminant herds. And like you said, uh, the, the amounts of game that was plentiful in the, in the natural system, pre-modern man, it was just like, you know, they said the Pacific flyway would turn black when the ducks and geese were migrating and, and, you know, you'd have these huge, clouds of dust when the buffalo were coming across the plains and and so there was never you know this whole idea of feast and famine i think for most humans uh, was a fallacy i think we feasted and fasted and and having that highly nutritious nutrient dense food also and being able to use fire and tools to cook it with actually helped us to get smarter as far as growing our brain, but that smarter had unintended consequences because, you know, we think we think we're real clever and then there's always the unintended consequences. Um, but one of the things we want to put to that is your point about nutrition is and the family is great, but it's also coupled with being regularly active, just like you are. I think, you know, like you forget that because that's just part of your life. Right. But nutrition is a. A key tool but if you're if you're sedentary you're you're signaling to your body you're in senescence and you know little by little over time your cells die or your mitochondria die your, your metabolic capacity you lose metabolic capacity yeah you got to get your heart rate up even yep. if it's just walking right yep. but you have to get your heart rate up if you're not getting your heart rate up um you're not signaling and That's and so it, it your heart rate has to get up and it should be up on a daily basis i mean if we look at like who where we came from we should have we should be like moving every single day. Um, and unfortunately, our our technological age of convenience, we don't do as much walking as we used to walk. And we used to do a lot more walking. And so, you know, that's something that people should be conscious of if they're not an ultra runner, for example. They should be definitely, uh, you know, moving on a daily basis. Well, and that to a point, there was a interesting study that came out of University of Arizona, and this was probably 15 years ago or more. Uh, and this professor is an anthropologist who was studying the Hudsu, which is the still nomadic offshoot of the Maasai. Yep. And they are out hunting and gathering all day long, and they spend about 90 minutes to two hours in moderate to high intensity level efforts. And that pretty much mimics what, say, a marathoner or an ultra runner or a triathlete would do on a daily basis, mm -hmm. right? So you you couple the nutrition with what you're doing. You know, you're you're actually mimicking what that evolutionary model is, right? Yeah, and, yeah. Because and, eighty plus percent of the time we're running like under our aerobic ceiling in training. So yeah, you're. It's very like you know once you're in shape, you're, you're not running at a hard, hard pace, except maybe twice a week at the most. And then the rest of the time, it's all just easy aerobic zone one, zone two heart rate. You're cruising around, letting your mind wander. And, and, you know, and so like definitely tapping into that kind of hunter gatherer vibe. Right. So it, it kind of mimics that, that, you know, pattern of behavior, like you say, not just with, with how we, 
shop, you know, vote with our dollars, but but also with your physiology. So this is great stuff, Jeff. Thank you. Yeah.